All right, go ahead and turn in your Bibles or your phones to Ephesians. Going to do some Bible time here. Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6 is where we're at, almost to the very end of the book we've been studying for a while now, the book of Ephesians. I got here for the first service this morning, and I was uh, putting on this funky microphone that you wear when you speak, and uh, one of the kids at TCC saw me putting it on before the service, and she said, are you going to wear that? And I said, yeah, I'm going to wear it during church, and I'm going to use it when I speak. She said, well, what you need to do is make sure you hit the mute button when you're singing the songs. <laughs> I don't know if that was sage counsel or she's heard me sing before. But I took her advice. I took her advice. I'd love to uh, share a simple prayer with you that someone uh, shared with me this week. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you. Thank you that we don't begin this Sunday morning with you holding a blank scorecard to fill or a stopwatch to check or a spiritual thermometer by which you gauge our maturity. You've made Jesus' righteousness ours and you've hidden our lives in his. Thank you, Father. Now empower us to stand joyfully in the center of this righteousness as we muster our courage against the forces of evil today and this week. Amen. Amen. Well, I've been traveling last week. I was very thankful that you guys sent me to Europe to do some mission work there, envisioning for future partnerships with TCC. I was in Moldova and also Holland and the city of Amsterdam and around there. Had a great trip uh, looking to partner in church planting and evangelism and social justice, and it was a good time there. While I was there in Amsterdam, I visited a place called the Verset Museum, which is the Museum of the Dutch Resistance during World War II. You may be aware that during World War II, from about May 1940 to 1945, uh, Amsterdam was occupied, like most of Western Europe, uh, by Nazi Germany. And when they swooped in and took over the city the Dutch people just had three choices. They could flee, and many of them did. They climbed the mountains and tried to get into Great Britain. Uh, some escaped. That was good. Uh, or, if you didn't do that, you could just give in. Thousands capitulated to the Germans and joined the NSB, which is the Dutch um, Nazi party. But your third choice was to resist. Okay, to fight, to join the resistance movement that was alive and well in parts of France and in Holland. And the whole museum told the story that this occupation is not the way it's supposed to be. And yet, these few brave people, they stood and they resisted. While I was there, I took a picture, I'll try to put up here, that uh, kind of summarizes what life was like for those four or five years for people there in the resistance, if you can tell, that's an old-timey baby carriage. And hidden in a secret compartment there, the resistance fighters had their German Luger pistol and a live grenade. And they were expected at any time to reach under their child and pull the grenade if the resistance asked them to do it. The point is, the war was always on. And the resistance 
was always standing strong. And as we arrive to Ephesians 6 today, that's the message that God has for us in his word. We're involved in an ever-present day-to-day engagement with evil. This world is a battlefield. Jobs are lost with, along with your dignity. The violent dominate the weak and the violent get credited and promoted for it. Your children get sick, sometimes desperately ill. Lovers turn their backs on each other. The battlefield here. And the reality is that these things that happen aren't neutral. Instead, they're opportunities for Satan himself to get a foothold. To defend his original thesis that's fresh from the garden. Which is, your God cannot be trusted. That's Satan's word. Your God cannot be trusted. That's the essence of spiritual warfare. Well, thankfully, our comforting Father hasn't left us without a word in return. Today, we'll look at it. God's encouragement to you in the midst of this satanic occupation of his created world is the war is always on and the resistance always stands strong. I want to read the text for us here. Just a few verses. I'll begin in chapter 6 of Ephesians, beginning in verse 10. Read down through 17. Hear the word of God. It says this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. That's like a summation of all that's going to follow here. Be strong in the massive fortress that is our God. Verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 13, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances. Take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Get the picture. The war is on. Be strong in the Lord, says Paul. How do we do that? Well, we're going to look at these verses today. God gives us three things that we must know if we're going to resist evil. All right, three things that we must know if we're going to resist evil. Here's the first one. It's very simple from verse 10 and 11. Know your hope. Know your hope. Let me read verse 10 again. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Key in on the prepositions there. There's a lot of them. To be strong is not enough, right? It must be what? In the Lord. What kind of strength is going to rescue us? Strength of his might. Here's the fact. God has mighty power and it's at your disposal in Christ. God has mighty power and it's at your disposal in Christ. 
Now, what kind of power against Satan should we particularly hope for? Well, Paul has already given us a clue, and it's back in chapter 1. So turn back a couple pages in your Bible with me, or a couple swipes on your phone to Ephesians 1. I don't know if you ever thought like this. I've thought before, man, in my struggle, when I have a trial, when I'm going through a hard time, what would it be like to actually talk to a Bible hero? What if I could go to Isaiah or Jeremiah, or Abraham. Hey, Abraham, you're the man of trust. Let me share this problem and then just pray for me, man. Or Peter. Peter, you got great courage. Let me show you what I'm going through and you pray for me. And I don't know what they would pray. But here we get a glimpse into what Paul might pray because here Paul tells us his prayer for you, his prayer for the church in verse 16 beginning in chapter 1. Listen to this. And think about it in light of Paul's call in chapter 6 to have power and be strong. Here we go, verse 16 of chapter 1. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Paul's praying for him. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know. What's our first point here? First point is know your hope here, right? What's he praying for? That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. And he says a couple things. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? That's talking about the glory of your status as being a child of God. Paul wants you to know that. But secondly, particular to Ephesians 6, he says, I want you to know, verse 19, I want you to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. And then he describes where the power comes from. What type of power is it? Well, it's according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. That's the power that we have been given to overcome Satan. And the power that he used that seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, that exalted Christ over all. Above whom? 21 says it. Above all rule and authority and power and dominion, those are Bible words for evil spirits. Christ has been raised above all evil. So Paul's hope for you, get this, Paul's hope for you is that you know the power at your disposal in Christ. It is the resurrection power on one hand, that power that went from uh, death to life, that power is with you this week as you struggle against Satan. Roll the stone away type of power is your resource. And secondly, the victorious power shown when Christ proved that the destiny of all evil has been overcome it is to fail because Christ is seated on the throne so here's your hope against Satan I'm talking about what do I do this week when evil looms close to me I'm talking about your parenting anxiety I'm at the end of my rope with this kid discipline doesn't seem to be working what's my hope parenting anxiety, or as you deal with baggage or shame from where you've been victimized, or as depression takes seat in your soul. 
Maybe because your vocational dreams aren't coming true. Maybe because of some other reason you're struggling. Your strength in the Lord during these moments is to be to own that in the resurrection, Jesus Christ has brought you from the realm of death to the realm of life. However bad you have it, it will be overcome in Christ Jesus. And Satan and evil and rebellion and despair will not win. Christ is the champion. These are the type of deep spiritual truths that Paul says you are to hold on to. That's how you have power and strength in the Lord. Look at verse 11 again, back in Ephesians 6. Verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So it makes sense that the picture here is putting on armor because you're going into battle. And we read, put on your armor. It sounds like other things that Paul has said in chapter 4 when he was talking about the essence of Christian life. Remember what he said in chapter 4? He said, put off your old self and put on your new self. And then remember what he said after that? He said this, put on your new self created after the likeness of God. Right? You put on the new self because it's better than the old you, it's better because it has the likeness of God. It is like God. It is in His new creation image. One of the points is going to be in this text is where you could not stand, God stands for you. One thing that lets us know this is that when you read through this text and Paul starts talking about armor of the Christian, if you've read other parts of the Bible, you know that Paul didn't invent this language. He's actually pulling from some things that have been said in the past, particularly in Isaiah 59, we have a prophecy. And in that prophecy, it's a picture of God swooping down against injustice and he's wearing armor and he's going to save his people and deliver them in redemption. We'll look at that a little closely, a little more closely in a minute, but right now you should know this passage is about the deliverance that God has given you in Jesus Christ. So when Paul says, put on the whole armor of God, he's not saying, put these things on and then go kick Satan's butt. No, he's saying, put these things on and know that Jesus has already beaten Satan. Trust in his completed work. Remind me of the story in Luke 5. You remember it? it's a famous story. story about Jesus one day teaching in a house and he's rolling man. People have come from all across. He's going and he's healing and he's teaching and the place is so packed it's standing room only, right? And there's some guys who want to get in and they've got a friend who can't walk. He's paralyzed. How are they going to get in to see him? Well, they go up on the roof don't try this here. They start pulling up the tiles and they rig up this swing contraption and they lower him down to where he's now in the middle of the room. Jesus is teaching. What's he going to do? It's the important picture. Don't miss it. Jesus walks over and he stands beside the only man in the room who couldn't stand himself. 
And he says, I forgive you. I heal you. Stand up. Right? That's what Paul is saying here. When he says, put on the whole armor of God and stand against Satan, let's not do it on your own. Let's trust in what I've already done for you to procure the ultimate defeat of all evil when I will come back and finish the job. That's his message to us here. That's going to be your hope as you battle against evil and Satan this week. So know your hope. Know that Christ is standing beside you. Know that Christ is fighting for you. Know that he's already won. And secondly, from verse 12, if you're going to resist evil, you got to know your enemy. Know your enemy. There's no mistake here with whom we do battle. And listen, this might be the most important point for you this week of the whole sermon. Here's Paul's point. Your enemy is Satan. Your enemy is Satan. But that gets lost in the day to day. You may not even have thought about this today. I'm going to go ahead and take a gamble and say, you've come all this way in today and haven't thought much about how Satan is against you. Some of you have because you're spiritually mature, but some of us haven't. We just don't think about it. Why? Because we tend to think of enemies as people, right? My boss is the enemy. He doesn't treat me fairly. He favors other people. My boss, he's the enemy. No, he's not the enemy. The guy who cut me off in traffic. Less people like that in the world. He's not your enemy. The government is the enemy. Donald Trump, Joe Biden, if we can get rid of those guys. No, they're not your primary enemy here. A little closer to home, you're tempted to think your kids are the enemy. Man, they're always in my face. I just want silence. No, your children, blessed children, are not your enemy. My husband's against me. If we could just get aligned he could just grow up. Husband's not your enemy. Even more intimate. Why is God doing this to me? 20 years. 20 years I've been faithful and now I have this in my life? God, why are you? Why would you? God's not your enemy. Walk out of here today knowing your enemy is Satan. Look at verse 12. Don't take my word for it. First part, of, first part of verse 12 could not be more clear. You do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Your people are not your problem, okay? These things are your issues, but they're not your enemy. The devil is your enemy. Do an exercise with me. In your head, not out loud. In your head, not out loud. I'm going to do it. Put in the name of a blank a person you're tempted to think is your enemy and scream in your head, blank is not my enemy. Ready? I'm going to do it. Ready? I hope you did it too. That person, they may be against you, but they are not your chief enemy. We're to love people. We love people. People aren't our enemies. Satan is our enemy. In fact, your chief foe 
isn't really a physical and material one at all. If we can't think of people as our enemy, we like to think of other physical things sometimes as our biggest problems, right? Your arch enemy is not sugar, all right? Caffeine's not your savior. Maybe important to watch your sugar, but that's not your enemy. I can do a couple pull-ups. I went jogging yesterday, but unfitness is not my first foe, okay? It's not my enemy. Aging, we think a lot about aging. It's brutal. It's a beast. When we planted this church 15 years ago, my hair was black. Just to show how much our culture thinks about aging. You know what dropped on us this week? Face app. You guys see face app on your phone? This is the cute little thing where you take a picture of yourself and then you hit age and it shows you what you would look like when you're older. Now, just to show you that I'm a hipster pastor, I did this to myself. I'll put the picture, what I'll look like when I'm old. (laughs) I'll take it. Not too bad. I'll take it. not showing you my real one. (laughs) Aging is not your problem. Your chief battle is against a metaphysical foe, okay? And according to Paul, he's brought friends. Look at verse 12 again. You don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but you do wrestle against rulers and authorities. Now, this verse is hard because he uses words, but it gets clearer as you go. When he's talking about rulers, he's talking more about demonic rulers and against authorities. That's Bible talk for demons. Against cosmic powers. Okay, that's a little more clear. Over this present darkness. The world's broken. It's dark. Against the spiritual forces of evil. That's who you wrestle against. The spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He's piling on different words to represent the dark spiritual beings that Satan employs to take you down, to take your faith down, to believe the lie that your God is not for you, that you will not live forever, that your chief joy should not be Jesus. Those are the lies of these dark spiritual forces of evil employed by Satan. We don't know that much about them. It might be helpful, though, to stretch your brain and think in terms of dimensions. All right, I read this week an article. It stuck out to me because uh, it's where I grew up. At the Oak Ridge National Laboratory in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. This summer, a renowned physicist, her name is Lisa Broussard, she's doing research with subatomic particles. I don't understand all the research because I'm not smart. But I can understand the article. What she's doing is she's manipulating these particles and she's spending all these resources to figure out whether or not, through a physical study of subatomic particles, whether or not we have a multiverse present, right? They shoot these particles with radiation. If they react a certain way, it proves that there's another dimension. Zurich right now, different scientists, different researchers doing the same type of experiment. Now, I don't want to validate their experiments or invalidate them. I don't know. But it's that concept that Paul's getting at. There is an overlapping reality of another dimension, a heavenly dimension that we don't see, but it's very, very present. 
And it is the place where Satan is touching the physical, the material, and he's trying to pull you away from your beloved Jesus Christ. The metaphysical realm that intersects and interplays with our own. And this interplay, according to Paul, causes a ton of evil in our world today. I told you I was traveling Last week I went to Moldova, former Soviet state. It's okay if you don't know where it's at. Uh, but you should know it's the poorest country in all of Europe. All right, one-fourth of the adult population have immigrated out to find work. Now think about it. When one-fourth of the adults leave the country, what does that leave behind? Vulnerable kids, right? They don't take their kids with them. They leave the kids and the young adults And the mafia is very aware of this. That's why in the past 20 years, over 400,000 have been abducted from Moldova. And they're now in the industry of sex trafficking. Human enslavement. 400,000. Look, Raleigh's only got 462 in 2018. That's about the size of Raleigh's population have been abducted in the past 20 years. They tell them they can find a job in Moscow. They get them to Moscow. They take their passports. They never give it back. Then they have them trapped. Take them to a basement. Then they're exploited. 400,000. That's Satan at work. All right? That's his evil on full display. The biblical picture of our existence is that Satan is always working in our lives. And I'm not just talking about big areas, systemic areas of society, like human trafficking or racism, Antifa violence. Those things are real, but also about things more personally. I'm also talking about your daily struggle to worship Christ when you get up. That's where Satan is going to be working. Your broken relationship with that one family member you thought you would never be separated from, That's where Satan is working. Your habit of sneaking porn on your phone, that's where the evil forces will work against you. I'm aiming at those mornings when you're just going to stay in bed instead of breakfast. You just don't even want to face the day. Talking about the shame you feel about your body every time you go out in public. These are the areas where Satan will be warring against you. Now let's think about it a little bit more. Here's an exercise. I'm going to read for you some other places in Paul's letters where he describes what the devil is up to and who he is. And I want you to think if the devil's up to this, where might he be working or trying to work in my life? Okay, get the exercise. I'm going to tell you the general from Paul, the reality, and I want you to look at your own life Honestly, and think where Satan might be working. Here we go. Earlier in the book, Ephesians 2, 2. Paul says, Satan is the ruler of the realm of the air. He is in some sense ruling. How is he trying to rule in your life? Ephesians 4, 27. This one's very practical. Paul says, the devil takes advantage of anger to harm believers. Where is Satan trying to use your anger? 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 and 10. 
Paul says, Satan is clever. He's plotting. He's a plotting adversary. He's scheming. He's strategic. What's his strategy to pull you away from Christ? 1 Thessalonians 2.18 says, Satan wants to hinder gospel progress. All right, where is he trying to keep you from sharing the simple story of what Jesus Christ did? 1 Corinthians 7, 5 says he leads believers into sin. All right, your identity is a Christ follower, a disciple. Paul says Satan has Christians beginning to follow him. Where might that be in your life? Finally, 2 Corinthians 12, 7 Satan inflicts pain on Christians. Satan inflicts pain on Christians. How's he hurt you? How's he using some of your bodily pain to hurt your faith or the faith of other believers? These are areas where Satan is at work now, and we must respond. We must resist. And thankfully, Paul tells us how in the coming verses. So first, We've seen that to resist evil, you're going to have to know your hope, the person and work of Jesus Christ. You're going to have to know your enemy. Satan, first and foremost, is Satan. Finally, he says, know your weapons. Know your weapons. This is verses 13 through 17. I'm going to read that part again. 13, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth, put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Here we have four verses, six pieces of armor. Four verses, six pieces of armor. Each piece represents a resource that you have in Jesus. And each of these things have already been mentioned in the letter. Truth, righteousness, faith. These first four, belt of truth, breastplate of righteousness, shoes of gospel preparation, shield of faith. The first four mentioned here are all grammatically connected to the command to stand. Stand therefore, verse 14. Stand therefore, and then these four things are connected to that verb, right? The last two have a different imperative. It's it's either take, as it says in the ESV, or in some traditions that your Bible might say receive. These are gifts that we strive to make effective. Helmet of salvation. Sword of the word of God. Now get this. Earlier I mentioned In the Old Testament, in Isaiah 59, God gives us a picture of how he fights evil. All right? That's the picture that underlies Paul's thought here. He's using words from Isaiah 59 as he writes to you in Ephesians 6. So what I want to do is go back and just look at that and read it to you. It's a big passage, but it's a big God, so we'll make it through. Isaiah 59, starting in verse 15. If you want to look there, you can. I'll try to put it up on the screen. This is the image that's informing the vision Paul has for you as you fight evil, okay? Here's the context. The context is God is looking over an oppressed people and he sees that they need rescue from their predicament. 
That's what God sees, so he's going to do it. What he sees in verse 15 is truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. Sounds like today, doesn't it? He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. That's a huge verse. God looks out and says, there's no man who's righteous and there's nobody to intercede. I'm going to fill that need. But what does he say? Then by his own arm, he brought salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak according to their deeds. So he will repay wrath to his adversaries. Repayment to his enemies. Justice talk. To the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west. And his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream. God to the rescue. Which the wind of the Lord drives. And this is what he says now. And a redeemer will come to Zion. To those in Jacob who turn from transgression. Declares the Lord. He's going to bring someone to solve this. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, the faithful people. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth. That's the promise. My spirit's going to be with you. Nor the mouth of your offspring or the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. To sum it up. We have God to the rescue, battling and defeating evil. But don't miss the bigger picture. Through his Redeemer that we know as Jesus the Messiah, who you can claim is yours today. You look at him and say, I need redeeming. I need forgiveness. I'm not just, but you are. I take you. Through that Redeemer, the Messiah, God has made a new pledge. His spirit will not leave us. All right, that's huge. God's spirit not only will not leave you, but in the gospel, as you are converted, the spirit comes into you and recreates you. So it's not just God beside you even, as good as that would be. It is God inside you intimately, remaking you to fit his image and to overcome evil. Therefore, in your fight against evil and Satan, you have access to all of the glorious attributes of God in Christ. When he says put on the armor of God, it's the armor that God is wearing. You have access to that in Christ. Truth, righteousness, gospeling, faith. You're now connected to them by the Holy Spirit. They're all seen exhibited in Jesus and they're all yours as you seek to fight Satan. If you're a sports fan, you might know at uh, Duke University, the head football coach there, his name is David Cutcliffe. Now this guy, Cutcliffe, is a good coach. He's taken a team that was a perennial loser. Sorry, Duke fans, but they were losers and they had winning teams for six out of the seven past years. He's a good coach. You might not know, before he coached at Duke a long, long time ago when I was in school, he coached at my alma mater at the University of Tennessee. And in 1998, he was the offensive coach. I hear you. Go Vols. In 1998, he's the offensive coach, and we go undefeated. I say we, and I mean it. I was there. 
Didn't play, but I was there. <laughs> they win all their games. They head to the biggest game in our program history, biggest game in 50 years. The national championship game was the first one. And right before the game, Coach David Cutcliffe gets hired away. He's no longer coaching the offense anymore. Who's promoted is a rookie quarterback coach named Randy Sanders. Hasn't coached a game in his life. And they go into the game, and guess what happens? Do you think the whole game rested on the shoulders of Randy Sanders, the rookie coach? No, these guys had won 25 of the last 27 games. Coach Cutcliffe had already coached them. They won that game on the back of the players who were used to winning. That's all they did. They won, they won, they won. They got the championship. They won. He rode them. And that's the picture God gives you today. Don't go into the battle thinking you have to wear the armor and you have to do everything yourself. God has already won the victory in Christ. Read a quote this week. It's good. This guy named Ian Dugwood, he's a professor at Westminster Seminary. He says these things more pretty than I do. All right, so I'm going to read it to you. It's perfect. Listen to how he says this. He says, most importantly, the Old Testament background of this passage challenges the common view. This is great. This challenges the common view that the Christian armor is primarily a set of disciplines we must perform to measure up as Christians. That's how I used to read this passage. Now, it's certainly true that God's armor describes essential qualities for us to pursue passionately if we're to stand under Satan's assault. Yet, the armor is first and foremost God's armor rather than ours. Through the gospel, the divine warrior gives us his equipment which he wore first triumphantly in our place in his definitive struggle against the forces of evil. Jesus Christ is the triumphant warrior over Satan and death and sin. Through his faithfulness and righteousness and his victory, it's now credited to us as if it were our own. Because he stood firm in his battle, we Christians, weak and fearful and unprepared as we so often are, also will ultimately stand. That's good news. Amen. He said it well. Now, we won't look at each of these pieces separately. We don't have time, but I want to look at one piece of these armor so that you can know kind of how this is supposed to work when you're fighting Satan, when you're tempted and you all know what it feels like. You got to make a choice. Follow God, follow Satan. Here's how to work this. I've always been intrigued by the shield of faith here, okay? And it stands out for a few reasons. First, it's the only piece of armor that has that phrase in all circumstances. You see it in verse 16? In all circumstances. It's like a multi-use weapon, all right? You can use it for a lot of things. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. Then we get the explicit use, the purpose of this thing. You can use it in any circumstances, and this is what you use it for. To snuff out all the ignited missiles of the evil. And that sounds pretty good, right? Flaming arrows are being shot at you by Satan. The shield is going to snuff them out. Thirdly, historically, the shield would be the biggest piece of armor that the warrior would carry. It would be about from your shoulders down to your knees. It's huge. So it's always intrigued me, how can we wield this 
to do battle with Satan. One more quote. Hang with me. Same guy. He said it good. Listen. He said, Paul is not saying that faith in itself has remarkable defensive power against Satan. That's not the point. Rather, he's saying that faith protects us from Satan's attack because faith takes hold of the power and protection of God himself. Get that? That's what faith does. It reaches out and it takes hold of the power and protection of God himself. Throughout the Old Testament, it's God, not faith, that is repeatedly described as our shield. Okay, Genesis 15.1, Lord tells Abraham, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Proverbs 35. God is a shield to those who take refuge in him. God is our shield and refuge. He's our hiding place in the days of difficulty. His faithfulness will keep us safe when we're being shot by arrows, flaming or otherwise. Faith becomes our shield in Paul's imagery because, hear me, because it is the means by which we flee to God for refuge. Faith is your shield because it is the means by which you flee to God for refuge. Maybe Paul had in mind as he's writing this, Psalm 91. Remember Psalm 91? Where the poet sings this in verses 4 through 6. God will cover you with his feathers. And under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be what? Your shield. And rampart. Here's the promise. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the dark, nor the plague that destroys at midday. The plague... And we don't have to deal with plagues. Plagues wipe out one-third of your population, right? And this guy is saying, even though there's a plague, I'm not fearing evil. It's amazing. Faith connects you to the victory God's already won so that you do not fear. Note specifically the hope here in Psalm 91. The hope is you will not fear. It's not you'll have no more night terrors. That might still happen. It's not the cessation of arrows. If I know Satan, they're going to continue to fly, right? That's not the hope. The hope's not that, oh, Satan, one day he's just going to stop shooting at me. The hope is you will not fear. It's not that disease will miss you. You'll lose your sight. Your back will go out. You'll lose your hearing. I did. Your hope is not that your body won't get worse. It's gonna. Your hope, because of what Christ has done on the cross and through his resurrection, he lived a perfect life. Because of these things, he defeated Satan, and you don't have to fear. Ultimately, the victory has been won. Someone else that says things better than I do, Martin Luther, famous hymn. I want to read these words. You probably know them. I'm not going to sing them because of what that girl said earlier. (laughs) I'm now scarred for life. But just listen. Listen to these words. Man, did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Ask who that might be, Christ Jesus. It is he. Lord Sabaoth's name, 
from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. For God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. The little word is Jesus Christ. He is the victor. That's your call this week. Know your hope in Christ. Know who's attacking you. It's Satan. And know the weapons you have. You've been given faith. You've been given truth. You've been given righteousness. These things connect you to the God who can beat down Satan through you. Let's pray together.